And now, live from Level 5 Productions on the island of Milleronia, it's The Larry Miller Show! Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who's ever gotten beaten up in a bar. Hi, folks, and welcome back to The Larry Miller Show. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And boy, I have to tell you, I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to. I do, I know, I do every week, but it's true every week. That terrific orchestra makes me feel so good every time they play our theme song. And it has a name, by the way. I don't think I've ever said this, but it it has a name. It's called Milleronia. Yes, I know, I know. It seems to you that everything on the island here of Milleronia and that the production company of Milleronia and the studio of Milleronia, and I know it all seems to be called Milleronia, but, well, why the heck not? That's my feeling. I could name it after the colonel, and I've named many things after the colonel. Most of them are not fit for a family show. But I have named many, many things after him. In any case, though, they get better every week, and that theme just makes me happy. And, of course, that's the Gregory Walcott Orchestra and the Melinda Tyler Godwin Dancers featuring boy tenor Colonel Jeff Fox asking the musical question... Who would win in a shootout, Lucas McCain or Josh Randall? Well, that's a terrific question. That's a great musical question. And I'm not just saying that because Colonel Jeff has taken his usual three helicopter rides to get here to Milleronia at my behest. And uh, that's a great question because... He and I both love The Rifleman. It's a great show with Chuck Connors, who's a great actor. He's terrific on that show. And you know what? It's written so well. It's Plus, by the way, it turns out Sam Peckinpah, the great director, before he became a great film director, well, directed a lot of The Rifleman. And I think it shows. I'm a huge fan of Peckinpah anyway. But I have to tell you, folks, I have always felt this way about The Rifleman because the theme is perfect. Those were themes in those days that sounded like a country that wasn't afraid. You know, you hear that theme, and it's arranged so well. And it really makes you think, wow, I ought to sit up in bed and watch this show instead of just watching it lying down. But I love watching those episodes That's a show where I'm glad they run it two, three, five, nine times in a row on Saturday or Sunday morning so that if my wife wants to turn on the TV early, I can always, well, essentially steal the remote and put on The Rifleman. In any case, it's a terrific show. And that beginning, good Lord, when he's got that great rifle, he was in that show, he was known as a great shot. He was a great shot. And, you know, his son, Mark, knew it, and the the sheriff knew it. Everyone said, who's the best shot? Well, it's Lucas. It's Lucas McCain. And he's got that 
Well, that pump rifle, I don't know what it's called, but with a big circular hand grasp there. And so he fires 13 shots in a row. There's a little uh, question about it for me because I th- I've heard this enough that there are 13 bullet blasts. You can count them. And, uh, and, but I think, I think he just, it's 13, but there are 12 shots fired by hand. I'm not sure. I think maybe they put in an extra one or it's perfect. It just, for whatever the reason, it really works. But folks, Chuck Connors looks right up to the right into that camera. He is just looking up to the right into that camera with a great tough 50s western hero look i mean you just don't want to he was a professional baseball player by the way for a while chuck connors and he was boy he sure looked at a tough guy tall had to be like six three six four and he was tall and muscular and but i'll tell you when he fires that rifle pow 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 and then he reaches into his left hand pocket on the shirt and takes out another bullet and he, folks, he just glances quickly at the shirt to make sure he got a bullet out. But then he looks right back up at that camera. And I'm telling you, if you're the bad guy in that episode, you'd have to be thinking, whoa, oh, come on. Why did I have to stop in this town? I didn't know this is where Lucas McCain lived. And I love those shows. And uh, Josh Randall is the show name also of the great Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen before his movie career really began and took off. And uh, he was the star of Wanted, Dead or Alive. And uh, those were also the names, I guess, the days when they didn't kid around about titles. You know, well, can we put the word death in there? Yes, why not? Who cares? Yes. Wanted, Dead or Alive. And uh, he had that, he had that rifle that sort of strapped to the leg, didn't he? And that was a pretty neat thing for those days, because those are big days of westerns. They all had different kinds of guns, and they were worn differently. And some of them had well monograms on them. Some of them had little statues or statuettes on them. They were pretty cool. And uh, boy, Steve McQueen was also someone you didn't want to fool around with. So, Colonel Jeff came up with the musical question for this week. Who would win in a shootout, Lucas McCain or Josh Randall? I think it's a heck of a question. And I'm here to tell you, number one, I don't think either of them would win because I think they were both so cool and so honest and so tough and such great pioneers that they would be on the same side. They would always be on the same side. They would always know who the bad guys were. So it wouldn't ever come to Lucas against Josh. Well, sure, maybe every so often when they were chasing, you know, chasing a whole gang of bad guys out on the road somewhere. The road, I didn't even know what the road meant in those days. I mean, I don't know what it means of, well, you're in your town. And, well, you got to go to the next town. Where's the next town? Is it five miles away? Is it 25 miles away? Is it 85 miles away? And I'm not kidding now. I really, how far away 
is one town in pioneer days from another. And once you get to the other town, well, you always do the same thing. I guess you always do the same thing. The first thing you do is say, okay, where's the saloon? You got to go right to the saloon, don't you? Because that's where they would have water. That's a silly way to think of it. Well, that's where they'd have the water. Well, okay. That's also where they'd have the whiskey and the beer. And the dance hall girls. I never understood, by the way, and I still don't think poorly of any of the dance hall girls. I guess they're supposed to be, well, aren't they supposed to be, well, prostitutes, I guess, or working there with the dance hall, you know, uh, hi, Rowdy, can I uh, get you a drink? Well, you want to buy me a drink? But I just think I used to fall for them. I am still so much, so head over heels about, well, Miss Kitty, Amanda Blake's part in Gunsmoke. And I never really went for women who had that much makeup on. And uh, But when she, whatever she wears, I think, oh, wow, she's just beautiful. And uh, even as a kid, I, th I just had a crush on Amanda Blake. God bless her. I hope she's still well and out there working. And uh, But, boy, and, and Matt loved her. They were always going out. That was the thing that was somehow you never talked about. They never talked about on the show. So, uh, Matt, are you and uh, you and uh, Miss Kitty still going out? And everyone, Festus, everyone, Doc, they go, she don't. Hey, hey, watch out. Watch your mouth. Keep quiet. Put a cork in that. I don't know why. You know why? Well, because if word gets out, yeah, then what? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't think I get it. But in any case, boy, I'll tell you. Those were good shows made in a good way. They told very good stories, and they were very well written, especially, in, you know, well, in The Rifleman and uh, Wanted Dead or Alive. They they were 20-minute shows, and you felt good about that, that, hey, it went up and down, and it started. Here's a bad guy. He's coming to town, and he's going after Lucas because he's apparently a stupid bad guy. But in any case, that's my feeling that... Uh, Lucas and Josh wouldn't be up against each other because they were always the good guys and they were always going up against the bad guys. Now, if you push me, and I can feel some of you pushing me, that if you, if you push, I have to go with Lucas McCain. I mean, he's, for crying out loud, he's the rifleman, okay? And he's the coolest, toughest guy and you know his son, he's got a son, and the sheriff likes him too, and I, so I'm sorry, and I know they've all passed on now, I'm, uh, Steve McQueen, but I I would have to go with Lucas McCain over Josh Randall. I don't think it would ever come to that, but if it did, I think those 13 shots in a row would come out of Lucas's rifle pretty fast before he did that big one-hand flip around that recocks it, I guess. In any case, good question for Colonel Jeff. He felt that Lucas would win, too. It was close to mine, anyway, that, that Lucas is known for his shooting. And, you know, if Josh rode into town, maybe he hadn't heard, or maybe he thought he could he could beat Lucas's shooting. But... The guy, for crying out loud, the guy is known for the shooting. And he's known for the ka-pow, pow, 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 pow. And 
He's sort you know, he's sure known for that as far as I'm concerned. And uh and now something we've never done before, which is telling you about a brand new haiku contest we're going to have here. Now you can't say a lot of shows have things like that, by the way. And I don't even think the idea comes up much. But you know what? The Colonel and I were talking about this, and this was this was his idea. I think it's a terrific idea that, well, we're encouraging listeners to get on the poetry bandwagon by writing a haiku about me or this show. Now, if you've been to seventh grade, and we've all been to seventh grade, maybe there's a couple of you out there who haven't been to seventh grade, but I'm just glad you're listening to the show. And... But if you've been to seventh grade, you know what a haiku is. It's 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 a short poem that makes a, a quirky or surprising observation about some fleeting experience, even in a moment. Even in a moment, it's usually it comes from Japan, and I don't even know what that means that it comes from Japan. I always knew in seventh grade, well, this comes from Japan. That's what they do in Japan. Well, that means. Before war, after war, during war, they still sit down and write a haiku about it. But it's usually an otherwise ordinary or trivial-seeming event. It can it can express a sudden insight, and it could be something about something involved with nature. Now, I just wrote a quick haiku. They have three short lines. The first line is five syllables. The second line is seven syllables. And the third line is five syllables. And uh, in case you're wondering how often do they stay constant to the 575 rule, always, since, well, the 5th century, since whenever this came up in Japan, it's 575. And I just wrote a quick one, and here it is. Don't tease me, my friend. The graveyard is full of pests, but I'm still happy. Now, that's a that's a haiku. It's 575. Uh, the colonel chuckled at that when I when I read it to him. I I don't know whether I, it, it, it's funny or not, but it, it's not supposed to be. You could write one about the sun coming up. You could write one about, well, anything, fish in the sea. Or you could write one about how uh, pretty your girlfriend is and how much you want to kiss her. Or, ladies, you could write one about how, uh, well, how handsome your boyfriend is and how how much you want to kiss him. In any case, though, you, you write a haiku. Put one down and, and send it to us. You can submit it by posting it on the show's Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Larry Miller Show, or tweeting it to us on Twitter, and we're the at Larry Miller Show, or through the contact form at LarryMillerPodcast.com. And in case you're wondering or guessing, yes, the colonel put all those addresses together. I just read them, and I have no idea what I read. But send them to uh, to those places, please. Here's here's an idea that was also put down by the colonel. 
If you're on Facebook or Twitter, we encourage you to submit it there so everyone can get in on the fun. We've got a good group of LMDSers out there. That's the Larry Miller Drinking Society out there. The contest is over at the end of April 2015. The winner will be chosen by an esteemed panel consisting of, well, me. It's the esteemed panel that begins and ends with me, or me, myself, and I. And uh, the colonel and I will go over all all the good ones, and, and we will be very glad you sent one in. And the winner will receive a signed copy of my book, Spoiled Rotten America, and plus the winner's haiku will be read by me on the Poetry Corner. That's pretty neat. So your name and your haiku will get on the air. So please send it to us. It's it, uh, it's nice. It's a fun way to think. In fact, I think the word haiku means, well, do we have to? And sure, I mean, everyone make a haiku and send it to us. And that would be, I guess that would be a lot of them. But we would we would read every one. And that would only take us till, well, till 2020. But I'm serious now. Uh, write us a haiku. Write a haiku about anything. I know that the colonel uh, put in there, yeah, write it about me or write it about the show or write it about going independent here on the show or write it about yourself. You know what? Write it about your dog, the dog you love or the cat you love or about how perfectly you poured a beer last night. So get involved, get there, and uh, I think it's the right way to go, and I think it was a good idea. So I'm looking forward to what you send. And by Amazon. That's right, Amazon.com, where, remember, our motto is where you can get anything you want except a real Amazon. I know the feeling. That, if that's what you want, sure, who wouldn't want that? A tall Gorgeous, muscular, tough, but very willing Amazon. That's men, men have to always have that, I think. Too. But very willing. Oh, okay. You sure she is? Yes. How, how can you be so sure? I am. That's all. That's all you have to know. If she's an Amazon here on Milleronia, she's willing. And uh, so, you know what, though? If you're going to shop at Amazon, what you do is go to our website first. You don't go there. No, you go to our website, which is LarryMillerPodcast.com. LarryMillerPodcast.com. Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. <laughs> Say, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> See, you could say that by the things that Colonel Jeff makes for the show, like a sound effect like that, you could say he's out of his mind, but he's not. He's very funny and he's very creative. And uh, I guess I always knew, and you always knew, that any time I say, who's on the mountain, Tom Mix...
We don't have a different sense of humor on Milleronia. True, it's a very nice place to sit around the pool and watch the women in bikinis walk around over to the bar or the buffet to get, well, what you get at a bar or, or a buffet. But I think that's a good sound effect. And you know what? What, what, you, what you do is so go to our website first, LarryMillerPodcast.com, click on the Amazon banner, and we'll take you there. That's right. It, it, we will get together, even though Dr. Chris is still at space camp. Colonel Jeff and I will get together. It could be the middle of the night. We don't care. Well, we care, but we will still get together, and we will take you to Amazon. You can go back to sleep or take a nap in your lazy boy chair. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and Amazon sends us a little bit of dough. That's that's why I think they're the greatest company in the world. You get whatever you want. Whatever you can imagine, you get. They're happy, too, because they get to send you whatever you ask for, and that's how they make a living. And we're happy here at the show, the Colonel and I, because they send us a percentage of whatever you order. That's a pretty good business. And by PayPal. That's right, PayPal. PayPal still also my... They're a favorite company to me, just like Amazon is. And in PayPal, you feel you're really doing something right for the world. And uh, my suggestion is that, you know, if... uh, if if you're if you're interested in if you like our show, and and you'd like to send us a few bucks to help out, and who wouldn't? You can do it through PayPal at our website again, LarryMillerPodcast.com. dot com. But you see, the thing is, instead of saying well, well, donate or pay as you like, we like to say buy us some drinks. That's right. So what you do is go to your favorite bar in the middle of the day when no one's there, two thirty or three o'clock in the afternoon. No one's eating there, no one's drinking there, it's just the bartender with his leg up on the speed rack doing a crossword puzzle. And you walk in, and uh, he looks up and smiles, and you say, how much do you charge for a drink? And when he tells you, you multiply it by two, and send that to our show. And that's one drink for the colonel, and one for me. And that's right. And we're going we're gonna to use that on our... Big next fancy fried chicken dinner, and uh, you're gonna you'll hear about that when it happens. I know it's taking a while, but that's just because we can't quite get it together to go out. Plus, at this time of the year, I'm on Milleronia a lot, and the colonel makes his trips out here on those three helicopters. Why three? Never mind. And what you know? What the truth is, though, that. We're gonna we're gonna use whatever you send us, and so thanks in advance. And there are different levels, by the way, to to contribute on this uh, level one through five. That's uh, based on my the piece I do about called the five levels of drinking, and or the biggest drink, the best drink, the most wonderful drink, called we're driving to Florida. And every little bit helps us here keep the old leg lamp lit. And thanks to everyone who's contributed already. And by the way, here's a little housekeeping issue.
That's the first time for that one. The colonel made that one. I love not only that the doorbell rings twice, which I think is just a great thing he threw in there, that why twice? Who cares? It rings twice, and as I said to him, after that second ring, you know, the traveling salesman is out on the stoop there, and he and he straightens up, and he and he makes himself a little more presentable, and he checks his breath, and he makes sure his tie is up, and uh, then, of course, you hear the vacuum cleaner, I guess that is, slowing down. I just love that, that the, that the motor. Uh. In any case, though, you know what? Here's a little housekeeping. If you had bookmarked our Amazon link before we went independent at the beginning of this year, please be sure to update your bookmark with the new Amazon link at our brand new website, Yes, LarryMillerPodcast.com. And uh, once again, that's something the Colonel put together. And uh, so I know it works, and I know it's true, and I know it's honest. And I know that he understands it, even though I have no idea what I just read. So that's important here at our studio. Someone understands these things, and it's not going to be me. And that brings us to my favorite part of the show... The joke of the week. That's. (laughs) I love these effects. That's right. The joke of the week, which was sent by listener Rod T. Reed. And we both thought it was a good joke. And uh, I hope you do, too. Here it is. A fella gets sent to prison for the first time. I don't know, Rod, by the way, why the joke starts that way, but it does. A fella gets sent to prison for the first time, and he's scared, and he's worried, and he should be. I would be, too, and you would be, too. So you know what? He gets sent there for the first time, and on the first night, he's in his prison clothes, and those oh, those cell doors close all over the cell block, and they clank and slam shut. And everybody's really quiet. And after a couple of minutes of just complete quiet, his cellmate, his new cellmate, walks to the cell door. And he holds the bars in his hands, and he puts his mouth through the bars just a little bit, and he shouts out, Number 24! He yells number 24, and... Folks, the whole cell block cracks up. They all laugh, and you can hear slapping thighs. Oh, they're laughing and laughing and laughing. And then uh, down from the other end of the cell block, you hear another inmate. He yells, Number four! And the same thing. People crack up. The whole cell block is just, oh, they're loving it. Our new friend, our you know, who's just gotten to the prison, is getting into the spirit of the things. And, and, he, and he says to his, well, his cellmate, he goes up and he whispers to him, what, 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 what is that? What does it mean when you just, you, you know, you yell those numbers and, the, and, and his cellmate just says, well, it's just like this. See, at this point, we've all been in prison a long time and everyone's heard every joke in the world, every joke there is. And we're not really not interested in hearing the jokes again. But we know the jokes, so we just number them. And when we shout out one of the numbers, 
People remember the joke and they love it. So everyone laughs just like that. And so the new guy is, is excited. And he said, well, that's a great idea. And he walks over to the bars himself and he holds the bars and he puts his face through and he just, and he says, number six. And there's not a sound. There's nothing. Nothing at all. And he turns to his cellmate and he says, what what happened there? Why His cellmate is a little embarrassed, but his cellmate says, well, sometimes it's not the joke, but the way you tell it. <laughs> That's a pretty good joke, isn't it? Thank you to Rod T. Reed. It was fun to tell, too. And as you know, with what I always call, what has traditionally been called a shaggy dog story, which means you can make up anything and you know where it's going. But that's a heck of a of a punchline there. Well, sometimes it's not the joke, but the way you tell it. Thank you, Rod. And now we move on to my second favorite part of the show. The Poetry Corner. Nothing like a beautiful string quartet and some guy coughing to set up the poetry corner. And here it is. It's a beautiful poem, I thought, and the colonel thought too, that by Catherine Mansfield. And she lived from 1788 to 1823. Again, sadly, not a long life for so many of these artistic people, but she's a great poet. And uh, this is called A Little Boy's Dream. To and fro, to and fro, in my little boat I go, sailing far across the sea, all alone, just little me. And the sea is big and strong, and the journey very long, to and fro, to and fro, in my little boat I go, sea and sky, sea and sky, quietly on the deck I lie, having just a little rest, I have really done my best in an awful pirate fight, but we captured them all, all right, sea and sky, sea and sky, quietly on the deck I lie. Far away, far away from my home and from my play, on a journey without end, only with the sea for friend and the fishes in the sea. But they swim away from me, far away, far away from my home and from my play. Then he cried, Oh, mother dear, and he woke and sat upright. They were in the rocking chair, mother's arms around him tight. Isn't that nice? And as the colonel said, you know, it doesn't sound like the fanciest language used, but it's beautifully used, isn't it? And it tells such a nice story, a little boy dreaming. And it, it sounds like a little boy's dream, too. And, well, it sounds like when she wrote it, which was somewhere around 1810. 
And so they didn't have or need radios or TVs or CDs or DVDs or anything. But they had their imaginations and they had their dreams. And this was a little boy's dream. Catherine Mansfield was born in New Zealand, by the way, and to a very socially prominent family. And her family, with with her, moved to England. And, uh, oh, I think maybe she moved there on her own at a certain point. And she became friends with uh, D.H. Lawrence, some of the greatest writers of the time. And then, sadly, she got tuberculosis, which is what killed her. And still, though, she is alive forever and alive today with you and me in a little boy's dream. And now, my third favorite part of the show, the Triple M, MMM, the Magic Movie Moment. Oh, I do love this part because... There is something so magical, like a good joke. Uh, There's something so magical about movies. And you and I feel the same way. And some movies that you really, really, really like have scenes or characters or portions or moments in them that are just... You look forward to every time you see the movie. You could have seen it 30 times. And it still becomes... And it will always be a magic movie moment for you. And you know what, folks? It has to do with Gregory Walcott. I mentioned him before as our orchestra leader for this week. Gregory Walcott passed away, and I read his obituary today in the Los Angeles Times and then looked him up on the Internet. He was an actor I really, really liked. And, oh, so much. And he was 87 years old. And the story of his life, well, being born in a small town in North Carolina, and then he served in the Navy, and then he decided he wanted to be an actor, and he wanted to go out to Hollywood. So he hitchhiked out to Hollywood. That was done a lot in those days, by the way, especially after World War II. It was known, my folks used to tell me this, that if you saw a serviceman hitchhiking, you picked him up. You you didn't know who it was. You didn't care who it was. You picked him up. And it was a, you know, a, a small way, a nice way of giving back and saying, hey, thank you, pal. Thank you, fella. And here's your ride. And even if there are 10 or 20 rides that it took him to get from North Carolina to Hollywood, he made it. And as he said, he always carried, he had nothing else. He had a, a few bucks. He had a, almost $100 and a tennis racket. He always carried a tennis racket with him because he thought, well, he was 6'4 and very muscular, and he thought it would make him look more pickupable to everyone who was passing by if he had a tennis racket. And you know what? I'm glad he thought that way. Folks, Gregory Walcott was in so many movies and so many TV shows, and in fact, the picture... They had on his obituary, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, that a good obituary is like a small biography, and that's why I love them. You really get to know someone, and this picture, I'm looking at it right now, 
is of Gregory with Clint Eastwood in a terrific movie, Joe Kidd. That's right, Joe Kidd. And Gregory was in, well, it says here about 30 films and more than 300 TV shows, but he was remembered, it says, for the cult film many consider the worst movie ever made. And that's a hard thing to say. And it's a terrible thing to say. Gregory, God bless him, was a wonderful actor. And he was great in Joe Kidd, by the way. And he was in a movie, a lot of movies before this one came up. But yes, it's true that in 1959, a movie was made called Plan 9 from Outer Space. Now, I hope you've seen that, or I hope you will soon if you haven't seen it. Folks, it's a terrific movie. Now, it's... Well, it's not that fancy, and I just feel bad saying something like a phrase like that. Well, the worst movie ever made. It's not the worst movie ever made. It's an Ed Wood movie. Maybe you saw that uh, a terrific movie starring Johnny Depp and so many other good actors. And uh, when that was made, what was that, about 10 years ago? 10 or 12 years ago, something like that. And uh, Ed Wood... Well, another fellow, you look at that face smiling, and Johnny Depp's a great actor anyway, but Ed Wood made these movies that, well, no, they weren't that good. He made another one that, by the way, that uh, Gregory Walcott was in as well, called uh, Glenn or Glenda. And, But, folks, I'm here to tell you that Plan 9 from Outer Space is just knuckleheaded enough that you will love it. It's It's on the list of... So bad, it's fabulous. And I'm sorry that maybe uh, with so many of the great things that Gregory did in his career that uh, he thought it was, well, a little amusing that he would always be known as that guy from Plan 9 for Outer Space. It is that kind of movie. It's so well done because it's so poorly done. And, you know, uh, uh, Gregory played Jeff Trent, the pilot of the plane, and it's about aliens who come down who are going to conquer humanity so that they cannot use solanonite or something like that, a, a chemical used to make bombs. And, folks, everything in the movie is just a tiny bit knuckleheaded. The, the airplane that Jeff is the pilot of, the airplane, they show the cockpit in it from where the windshield would be. So you're looking at the pilot and the co-pilot. But you'll see when you see it, they have, well, their seats are two dining room chairs. I mean, they're two chairs. Not the ones with arms, but two chairs. And and their steering wheels there, so to speak. Uh, so the pilot is, is holding, well, uh, on a big wooden stick, on top is a is a, a, a crescent moon of wood, more wood. Maybe it was because of Ed Wood, but it was is wood. He's holding wood. But you know what? Those actors, God bless them. I've been in a couple of bad movies too, and you know what? I try my best, and as Gregory said, he tried his best. They all did, and he didn't know at the time that that movie would take on a life. Folks, when I first moved out to California. And uh, I had some good friends and uh, still do. And 
four or five times a year, four or five times a year, uh, Leno would call us up, me and a couple of the other fellows, and we were up there quite a bit anyway, and to his house. And we knew, because he'd say, it's time for Plan 9 from Outer Space again. And I'm telling you, that was four or five times a year, and we were thrilled because we would have so much fun. We would get up there, and the five of us would sit on his living room couch and put on, well, the tape of Plan 9 from Outer Space. And we would howl laughing. I mean, not making fun of the movie, but, well, I'm telling you, when you look at those other character actors who are trying their best. They're doing really, really well. And folks, it's a wonderful movie. If you haven't seen it, see it. And you'll smile too. Maybe you'll laugh too. Maybe you'll just, the first time you see it, maybe you'll think, well, this is crazy. Because it is. It's a little, it's a little crazy, but they're not pickleheads and neither are you. And Ed Wood, God bless him, Loved making these movies, and he was not a big one on Take 34. If he got it, and that shot was being made, and it, it was done, if he got it, he would say, all right, we're moving on. And it didn't matter whether it was the greatest scene in the world. The part of the movie that is a magic movie moment for me, because it says so much about Hollywood and storytelling in a good way. One of his other stars in this movie was the great Bela Lugosi, who was, well, became a star for many, many things, but he, he played Dracula in the first great Dracula movie, and he played so many other parts. He was from Hungary originally, and, well, Bela Lugosi, what a great actor. But at that point where Ed Wood became his friend, was supporting him, it was in the 50s, and Bella was already an older man, and he wasn't feeling well, and, uh, oh, he was using this or that, that we would know today that it's not good to use drugs like that, but he it was really taking a lot out of him, and he died. Bella Lugosi died, and he died, and the movie wasn't made yet. It wasn't finished, and what Ed Wood did was... Now, this is, this is an interesting question. What would you do? What would I do? One of the stars in the movie dies. So what do you do then? You still have another seven or eight good, important scenes to shoot with that character. And I don't know if you'd do what Ed Wood did, but he hired another actor. Well, what does that mean? Well, technically, the guy wasn't an actor. All right, technically, he was an accountant. He was Ed Wood's accountant, and he hired that guy, or didn't hire him. You know, hire is in quotes. Maybe he didn't pay anything, and the guy came by to the set, and he would play parts where Bela Lugosi would walk from one house to another. These are houses in the San Fernando Valley in 1959. So just you see him walking sort of across one lawn to another lawn, and the way they would get by on it, if this gets by, is he would, uh, Edward gave him a black cape and he directed him to hold the cape up over his face so that you couldn't tell it wasn't Bela Lugosi. And he would stalk from one lawn to another, but he wouldn't stalk. He was an accountant who would just walk a little slowly 
with the cape held up. And you know how it looked? The truth is, how did it look? It looked like you doing it. It looked like just someone doing it who was walking slowly and holding up a black cape. And you see, the thing is, folks, I'm not making fun of that. I'm. It makes me smile in a very affectionate way. This is why that one moment I think of as such a magical movie moment, because just that fella, and I don't know his name, that fella walking from lawn to lawn in 1959, imitating, if that's the right word, Bela Lugosi with a black cape over his face and the director shooting this, to me, I think that's a wonderful storytelling moment and it's a wonderful lesson about what show business is. What are we willing to do? And the answer is usually, you know what? anything. Whatever it is, I've done some pretty wild things too. Maybe not as, well, maybe not as outwardly crazy as that, but it's said with affection that uh, I'm awfully glad Ed Wood had the motivation he had and the focus and the pleasure he had, and I'm awfully glad that he knew how to substitute in this story to make Bela Lugosi still in the movie. And I'm very, very proud of the fact that this great actor who just passed away, Gregory Walcott, and he was, God bless him, a great actor. And I'm glad he was in Plan 9 from Outer Space. He might have shaken his head over the years and said, well, how do you like that? I guess I'll always be known for that, too. But you know what? He's a great man with a good family, and he got all sorts of good parts. And uh, it says here, in fact, in the obit, that uh, Walcott got involved with Plan 9 through investor Ed Reynolds, a businessman he knew from church. And as Walcott later told it, he felt sorry for Reynolds and took the leading role because, quote, I thought maybe my name would give that show some credibility, unquote. Well, it did. I don't know that, uh, as the colonel mentioned before, I don't know if when they made that movie or when it came out, if it really hit the target. I don't know if folks liked it or loved it or just dismissed it. I don't know if the critics critics liked it or loved it. Well, I can guess, but I, you know what? Soon after that, that was 1959, and well, whether it's 1969 or 79, by the time I and a couple of my comic friends used to gather a handful of times a year up at Leno's for Plan 9 from Outer Space, I'll tell you what, we had the best time and the best laughs and I always really liked Gregory Walcott whether it's from the serious movies and he was wonderful he's a terrific actor and uh, whether it was Joe Kidd or any of the other great movies or TV shows he was in and oh there are a lot of them if you see that face once you see him you'll say oh that guy I know that guy he's good and uh, But I'm glad he was in Plan 9, and uh, 
He's off on his next journey now, and I I think he's in good hands. So uh, thanks, folks. And you know what? It's so interesting, though, that for... How did they make their memories? What I mean is, in the movie Johnny Depp was in, starring as Ed Wood, they showed, and it was true, that the cast in that, Tor Johnson, and the actor who played the giant wrestler with the uh, shaved head, and uh, Vampira, I don't know her real name, but uh, she was playing that then. She was the, well, the vampire woman. And you know something? Under Ed Wood and in his little world, they were all friends. They really were, and they would hang out together. I don't know what hang out meant in 1950 or 1955 or 1959, but they would be in booths, in restaurants or lounges or cocktail lounges, and they would be together, and they really looked great together, and they supported each other together. Well... I have good drinking memories. I, you know that sometimes you embarrass yourself, but there's always a lesson. There was one bar, one bar I used to go to, not a ton. I mean, I was there, oh, I guess 10 times over the years in New York when I was working at the comic strip and when I was learning how to be a comic. And there was one bar a couple of friends and I used to go to and it was in Manhattan, and it was just what I always call a regular bar. It's just regular. There was uh, some food you could get there, sort of those, I think they were called Stewart sandwiches, those hot things that you could radar, wave behind the bar, and they were always grilled cheeses or whatever. Who knows what the heck they put in those sandwiches. But you know what? You weren't going there to eat. And, folks, it was a terrific old wooden bar, perfect for New York, you would feel the same way. You know, that uh, you would walk into that place and you would think, wow, I like this place and I, I could spend a couple of hours here as long as no one punches me. And I say that because it was, well, it was the kind of place where there used to be a bit of rough and tumble, in, uh, but in an older fashion, in an older New York way. It was like the Naked City, that t- TV show that, had so many stories, well, that, uh, gee, I didn't go in there wanting to get hit. No, but you did. It happened to me. I got I got cold cocked in there one night, and I was just standing at the bar with another friend of mine. So we were standing there just chatting and having a drink, and a guy tapped me on the shoulder, and uh, and I turned to see who it was. And as I turned, he punched me so hard in the face, bam! Right in the face, and I mean, listen, no one's that tough, and I, I wasn't, you know, my knees buckled, and I, I didn't get knocked out, but I wasn't far from it, and I kind of, whoa, I slid down. I mean, he, he knocked me out. Now I wasn't out cold, but I mean, I went down, and my friend and the bartender, sort of a traditional bartender, and I mean traditional that he wasn't a young guy trying to be an actor. He was, uh, this was an Irish bar, and he was Irish, and he was, oh, 65, 70 years old, and he came with big, arm, big strong arms, and he came around the bar, and he and my friend picked me up, and he was the kind of guy, tough guy, the bartender, but uh, he tossed that other fella out. He knew that guy, and he tossed him out, but 
didn't give him the bum's rush, didn't pick him up by the pants and the collar and walk him, fast walk him out that bar. He knew the guy, and he just tossed him out, just, you know, get out, get out. Well, but, uh, but, uh, Pat, uh, Patty, I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't, get out! And it was great. And then he bought me, we were drinking draft beer and shots of Jameson's. And uh, I was, so he, he bought me, he put another round in front of me. He, another draft beer and another shot of Jameson's. And that was the news at that bar. The news down the bar, there was only 12 or 15 people there. But, and, uh, but the news among all the guys who were there wasn't that, hey, that fella just got punched out. Hey, Patty just threw out the guy who punched that fella out. Hey, Larry got hit. That wasn't the news. The news was everybody was saying to each other, Patty bought him a round. Patty bought him another round. That was news. And that's the kind of place it was. It was a tough place, but it was but it was fun. And I was remembering this because one night, well, I got tossed myself. I got, I was, I guess, just misbehaving. And I'm not just, uh, I would tell you if there was anything specific. But there wasn't. And uh, Patty came from around the bar, and he gave me, I got the bum's rush. And what that means is one hand gets the back of your belt and the other hand gets the back of your shirt collar. And he whips you around and he was strong. And he fast walked me out that door and accidentally on purpose, as they say, you know, intentionally, he wailed my head into the door frame. And in New York bars in those days, the door frames were made well, they were made from the fuselage of a B-17. You know, anything they couldn't destroy, they'd make into door frames at bars. And he walked me into that bang-oh! And that's just to what he would do in case there was still some... Well, he wanted to, you know, take all the starch out of case you were in a bad mood. And I wasn't. I just said, whoa, 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 bam! Into that door frame. And then he... With his hip, he opened the door and kind of tossed me tossed me out. And I hit the ground, hit the sidewalk. And I, folks, I, I remember I just, holy mackerel. I mean, my head was spinning a little from that door frame. And I started, to, I got up on one hand and I started to get up and I looked at him. He was standing there outside the door. And this is winter, by the way, in New York. And he was standing there. Arms akimbo, as you know, that means like with the hands on your waist and the elbows pointing out. And he was just looking at me. He wasn't being tough. He was just looking because he knows how to do this. And he looked at that point, folks, not like a bartender I had known a little. He looked like an engraving from a piece of wood from 200 years ago. You just... He was he looked so strong, and by the way, he was bartender strong, which means not like someone who's been working out at a health club, but he was bartender strong because he was about five ten, and that was tall for those days too. And his arms, I'm telling you, it's was it's always what I call Liam Neeson tough. When and I love Liam Neeson and all the stuff he does, and. This bartender Patty had those arms, those Neeson arms where 
you say, holy mackerel, those are long arms. And they went down into very muscular forearms. And he was wearing a white shirt and a black tie with a tie bar under a, a black apron over black pants. And I looked at him and those hands, you could just tell. First of all, this is the guy who carries the kegs of beer up and down the narrow wooden staircase in that place. That's part of what they do. And you do that for 40 years. You know what? You can toss anyone into a door. And I was looking at him, and he was just watching me to see if he'd have to do more. That's the only—he didn't mean me ill. He was just watching. And at that point, uh, my couple of friends I was with just came out to see <laughs> see if I was dead. And they walked down onto the sidewalk, and as they stood there, uh, the waitress came out, who was who had been serving us there. And, folks, I'm telling you, speaking of a woodcut, she was standing next to the bartender there, to Patty, and she was lo looking to him for guidance because she had the bill. She had our bill, and she wanted to give us our bill. And she had a long almost floor-length black skirt on and and a blouse sort of with frills on it. I don't know what they're called, things like this. Folks, I'm telling you, and she had red hair and blue eyes. Again, it was sort of like, of, co of course she did. It was sort of like, she looked like Nicole Kidman at 25. And, I mean, where, where there's it's like a cook, cookie cutter. You know, they they can make women like that in Ireland all day. She was very pretty, but quiet. And also, she just uh, held the bill out to Patty, the bartender. And he passed it to my two friends who were standing next to him on the other side. And they saw, and the bill was, oh, it was about $120, $130. And that's, look, that's a lot any time, but especially for young, young banana heads like us. And, uh, we just said, they they saw, I was still on the ground on the sidewalk. They looked at the price and just said, oh, wait a minute, they, you know, this. And they started to complain. They started to complain. But before they even could, before they even got more than a couple of words out, Patty looked at them and he just said, uh, now, fellas, you don't want to drink like men and pay like boys. And... I thought then, and I still think now, that's the wisest advice I've ever heard about, well, drinking. A fellow like that, tough as nails, but runs a good ship. And he says, now, fellas, you don't want to drink like men and pay like boys. And he had with the, with the Irish accent, now, fellas, you don't want to drink like men and pay like boys. And you know what? It was so strong. I th I thought, and I know my friends thought too, they calmed down and they, they just said, yes, sir. And and uh, they took out their cash and I got up. Well, I felt a little shaky, but I was all right. I was fine. And we all took cash out and we all just counted it up and gave a, a really healthy tip and handed it. To, we handed it to him too. That's the amazing thing. That's how much in charge he was. We gave it to him, and he gave it to the waitress. And then, folks, 
she did something I still, at the time I thought, gee, that's kind of amazing. She curtsied. She held the skirt out with one hand and dipped a little and curtsied. And we, the same way, we were just silent saying, where are we? Well, sure, it's, well, Lexington Avenue in Manhattan somewhere, and it's a bar, and it's current time, and where do these folks come from? This bartender and that waitress, who were fine folks, and she was so pretty, and he was such a good captain, and we thought, this really looks like a woodcutting from 1740, and it probably was. And I was awfully glad those folks were still there like that. And then she walked in with the money, and he said something. Well, it's it's just it's just it's a fine thing to say. He didn't say to us something stupid like, "Now next time you come here, don't do this or don't do that." He didn't teach a lesson. One thing, a short thing, he said. Uh, he looked up at the sky to check, see if there's rain coming, and then he just said to us, good breakfast down at the Greeks. Now, he didn't point. He didn't say, you know, two blocks down, there's a coffee shop open all night, and it's run by a Greek family. He just said what was more or less obvious to him, good breakfast down at the Greeks. And we just nodded, and uh, my friends again said, yes, sir, and it's amazing how you change in mood. And that was all he said. He didn't say, you're welcome back any time. Of course we're welcome back. He didn't say, good night now. He just walked in himself, because that's all you need. And that's why it was such a good drinking lesson without being taught like a lesson. And you know what? That great line, you don't want to drink like men and pay like boys, Good thing to remember, and good breakfast down at the Greeks. And you know what? That's exactly where we went. And he didn't say, hey, if you're still up, and he needed, the bartender didn't say, hey, if you still have some energy, or hey, you want to talk about this, there's a Greek restaurant there. He said, good breakfast down at the Greeks. And we went there. We found Of course we found it. How are we not going to find it? But we found it. We walked in. And we had a good breakfast, and he was right. The fellow who ran it was a little heavy set, like a Saturday Night Live bit, you know. And uh, he said he knew where we'd come from. We didn't even have to say, oh, we came from Patty's up the block, a couple of blocks up the but He knew where we'd been, for crying out loud. How would he not know? What man, 26, 30, or 36, or any age like that, came into his place at three in the morning, and hadn't just come from Patty's up the block. So you know what? We had a terrific breakfast there, and that's a good drinking story. That means a lot to me, because I came away with it, of many things, but one of them, I think that's the greatest drinking wisdom I'd ever heard, or still. Now, fellas, you don't want to drink like men and pay like boys. Good lesson for me to learn, for you to learn, and for you to pass on. There used to be rough-and-tumble folks like that all over the naked city. So now I know something else, and now you do too. And the reason I love that is because you and I know the same things. 
Homer is Homer, Pluto is a planet, and as always, remember... If you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And you can learn your own lessons anytime you want. Please join us again. Tell a friend. And we'll see you here.